Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. In this episode, I speak with Katrina Greer, a nurse practitioner in the oncology department at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center, about how she is handling the COVID-19 pandemic, both professionally and personally. Katrina is on the front lines of the COVID-19 response effort, and trust me, you won't want to miss what she has to say. Before we jump in, uh, and this is something I intend to do before each episode, I wanted to take just a few minutes to provide an update on today's news. Given the pace at which the news is progressing right now, my hope is that this podcast can act as a daily resource for you over the course of the coming days and weeks. I'll begin first in Washington, D.C., where the hope was that the Congress would reach a bipartisan agreement on a COVID-19 response bill. Unfortunately, that is not the case as of uh, the time of this recording, March 24th. And I think it's worth reflecting on exactly why the Democrats have not agreed to the legislation proposed by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate. The main criticism, and one that I wholeheartedly agree with, is that the Republican legislation creates a $500 billion slush fund that Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, has complete discretion over. He can allocate that money to any corporation that he sees fit. And I think we all can imagine a very plausible scenario where President Trump, who has not distanced himself from any of his businesses since assuming the presidency, uh, would demand that Stephen Mnuchin give a significant portion of that money to Trump businesses. And there's no regulation and no restriction that would prohibit Steven Mnuchin from doing so. And so that's criticism number one right there. The second is that the bill does little to protect workers. There's no adequate safeguard for uh, unemployment or for retirement or for wages. Uh, instead, the focus is almost solely on bailing out corporations. And in terms of the healthcare response, there's a dramatic uh, shortcoming in the amount of money allocated to healthcare providers and even to the 50 states in the amount of money that they can spend on gowns, on masks, and the amount of resources that the federal government is going to put into the response effort. And not only does that create uh, just a uh, deficiency in the availability of resources, but it also leads to social panic and a real breakdown of the healthcare system itself because without adequate resources and with the knowledge that there will not be adequate resources for a prolonged period of time, healthcare experts have told us that they simply cannot function for the duration of this pandemic. And so those are very severe shortcomings with the Republican legislation. Then I give the Democrats a lot of credit for not genuflecting to Mitch McConnell and uh, succumbing to the argument that expediency should take priority over substance. I think we all agree that time is of the essence right now, but if the legislation does not solve the problems that are emerging on a day-to-day -day basis, then I don't see the point in moving forward with that legislation. And just as a point of contrast, the Democrats in the House released their own bill uh, that has a much heavier emphasis on American families, not American workers. And so whereas the Republican bill grants uh, or requires the issuance of a $1,200 check, a uh, one-time check to every American adult 
and $600 for children. The Democratic bill um, offers $1,500 for each American adult and up to $7,500 for a family of five. The same GOP income thresholds uh, would apply, so the Republicans um, decided on $75,000 for individuals and $150,000 for couples. But the Democratic bill would make that money available to anyone with an individual taxpayer ID number, uh, as well as retirees and those who are unemployed. And so it's a much more expansive uh, provision that allows for um, a much broader swath of Americans to have financial assistance during this time. Um, equally important, the Democratic bill allocates $150 billion to hospitals, local health centers, and government-funded medical programs and provides an additional $80 billion in low-interest loans to hospitals. It also provides child care assistance to health care workers and emergency personnel. It expands paid sick leave and family medical leave. It provides $500 billion in grants and interest-free loans to small businesses. It dedicates $20 billion to reimbursing the U.S. Postal Service, and it requires companies receiving federal assistance during the coronavirus pandemic to institute a $15 minimum wage. And so the Democratic proposal, in my judgment, is the more appropriate and honestly the only measure at this point to provide the healthcare industry with the resources they need to navigate this crisis without also um, putting the economy in, in jeopardy. Uh, they, they prioritize $500 billion for small businesses. They give employees the capital they need to continue being consumers and active participants in the marketplace, but they don't abide by the top-down trickle or the trickle-down type of economics that Steven Mnuchin and the Republicans uh, have baked into their bill. And so I recognize that there's a lot of criticism of the Democrats right now for not um, moving forward with the Republican bill, but I think if we go back and look at history, we can see that that is never, almost never, the appropriate response to a crisis to just pass legislation purely for the sake of speed. And so if we look back to the Mexican-American War, uh, President Polk invaded Mexico and uh, accused Mexico at the time of shedding American blood on American soil. And there was a first-term congressman named Abraham Lincoln who didn't see any evidence that it was, in fact, Mexico who stepped on to the southwest border of the United States and provoked uh, a war. And so he called for a series of resolutions demanding to know the, quote, particular spot of soil on which the blood of our citizens was so shed. Uh, he was called the Benedict Arnold of his district. He was denied renomination by his own party. Uh, and his um, direct opposition to the war effort uh, was something that almost caused him his political career. But history judged him correctly because it was true that uh, President Polk's rationale for launching that war effort was not true. There was no evidence that Mexico invaded the United States. And so that's one example. We can find one again with the Tonkin Resolution during the Vietnam War when uh, the basis for the American war effort into Vietnam was that the North Vietnamese had uh, launched a missile against an American ship in the Gulf of Tonkin. Only two senators Wayne Morris of Oregon and Ernest Gruning of Alaska voted against and dissented on that uh, authorization in the Senate. 
they both lost re-election. But they also proved to be correct because there was never a missile fired against an American ship and it was a miscommunication and it ended up being a, a, a totally faulty basis, again, for an American war. We can look to recent history as well. The Patriot Act, which uh, was essentially written and in the desk of Dick Cheney well before 9-11, was passed without any meaningful debate after the, the uh, terrorist attack on the Twin Towers. And even today, we are still grappling with the constitutionality of a massive surveillance apparatus that the government has assumed in the wake of 9-11. Uh, there was obviously in the wake of Edward Snowden um, a revelation that those provisions, many of them were unconstitutional and were collecting the data of uh, Americans um, at home and foreigners abroad uh, without a warrant. Um, but had there been a meaningful discussion as to those provisions, we might have avoided um, that being passed. And then we looked to Wall Street after the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, we bailed out Wall Street. No prosecutions were initiated against the C-suite executives who uh, oversaw the fraud campaign that led to the Great Recession. And now we're in a situation just over 10 years later where many of the same warning signs were flashing red and uh, they were disregarded. And so rushing through legislation in response to a crisis uh, is, unless there's meaningful and substantive um, provisions provided for in the legislation, is not the way to go, not only at a time like this, but in the course of American history. And it's a perspective I think that we should keep in mind going forward. Moving to, uh, to Pennsylvania in particular, uh, Dr. Rachel Levine, who has been magnificent during the coronavirus uh, crisis, uh, announced today that Pennsylvania has 207 new cases of uh, positive coronavirus testing. That brings us to 851 total. Uh, Dr. Levine said that that figure is doubling every two to three days. And uh, that means that we appear to be very much in the infancy of this pandemic in Pennsylvania and that things will continue to compound in the coming days. But it is reassuring to know that Dr. Levine has a steady hand uh, overseeing the uh, um, as secretary of the health department and that Governor Wolf has a steady hand as well. Um, but at the same time, this is a long-term uh, battle that we'll be fighting in Pennsylvania and across the globe. Um, all Pennsylvania schools, Governor Wolf announced, uh, will be closed for an additional two weeks, uh, although teachers, the legislatures decided today, uh, will still be paid, which is uh, great news. Um, there is also a shelter-in-place order uh, that Governor Wolf has mandated in several counties in Pennsylvania, most of them in and around Philadelphia, and also in Allegheny County in the Pittsburgh area. And I would imagine that uh, a similar order is on the horizon for most of the state as well. Uh, it's worth mentioning that in India today, the Prime Minister declared what is uh, very likely the largest self-quarantine in, in human history. Uh, over a billion people are under a 21-day lockdown. Uh, the direct language that the Prime Minister of India used was uh, a total ban on coming out of homes. I think that gives us perspective on what uh, other countries are doing around the world 
And I know in Pennsylvania here we are dealing with some very drastic changes to our lives, but uh, if we look to India or South Korea uh, and we look at what works in terms of flattening the curve and mitigating the spread of this disease, um, very, very intense and uh, extreme efforts on the part of society as a whole are needed to really uh, quash this disease to the extent that we're able to. And so it's a perspective to keep in mind, and it's just something to see, I think, that gives us hope is that other countries are recognizing the correct way to go about this situation. And so now I give you Katrina Greer, who, as I mentioned at the top of this recording, is a nurse practitioner in the oncology department at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center. Katrina has a perspective on this situation that uh, we all need to hear, and her inspiring story will leave you uplifted and very hopeful, just as it left me. And so, without further ado, I give you our next true neighbor, Katrina Greer. All right, I'm here with Katrina Greer. G Katrina, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. So talk to us a little bit, uh, you know, now that we're living through this new world of ours, I think nurses and physicians are kind of pushed to the forefront of uh, those on the front lines of what's happening. But um, before we dive into what it's like to be a nurse right now, can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to be a nurse? Where did that motivation come from? Did you have someone in your life who uh, pushed you in that direction? You know, what, where did that come from to go down that path? Yeah, sure. Um, to start, I was a plan was to be an orthodontist. Uh, graduated college with a pre-dental uh, biology degree. Uh, great externship with Columbia University. Uh, my dad then was diagnosed with cancer, actually going into my senior year. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I spent during my externship at Columbia. I spent uh, nights with my dad over the weekend and got to really see nursing hands-on uh, at nighttime because there's really no uh, no one else there other than nurses. Um, and fell in love with nursing uh, that way. I, my mom first, when I first got to the hospital, when my dad was first diagnosed, said to me, I could see you as a nurse. And I actually laughed at her and I said, I could never do what they do. Hmm. Uh, a year later, I was applying to go back to school to become a nurse. Uh, my And the funny thing is, is I went into oncology, which is exactly, you know, what my dad, my dad had AML, acute myeloid wow. leukemia, and um, other family members have passed away from oncology, so I felt the need to go into oncology. My grandfather's doctor, his name is, was, is Dr. Amokaram, and... I don't know, five years after I became a nurse, I became a nurse practitioner, and now I'm his. Wow. So it's funny how things come back around, and that's where I am today and wouldn't have changed this route any other way. So I was going to say, it really sounds like it came full circle. What are some of the, uh, if you were to, now that you've been in the profession now, what are some of the traits that you see in nurses that are consistent? Like in, in, from an outsider's perspective, I would think that they would have to be very empathetic, patient, compassionate, uh, yes. do those fit your experience working in that field so far? Uh, yeah, they, you definitely, depends on which field you're in, you know, in, in oncology, it takes a different person to go day in and day out, uh, with cancer patients, 
Uh, and the same with any nurses, you know, you have to have that caring, that passion, that compassion. Um, patience, you know, is, it's a funny thing because we do have patience. Um, but when it comes to advocating for the better, uh, to better our patients, to help the families, our patience runs very, very low because mm. we want the best. Uh, so we are, we're ready to fight. So as a, you know, it's funny because you have patience, but, um, you're, you're, you're willing to, to taste, to take it or risk it all for, for your patients and, and to fight for them. So, uh, the other part is, you know, with oncology, sometimes you, you're there at the beginning of their diagnosis and you're actually the one that's holding their hand at the end. So, uh, I think that has been a huge lesson and when I want to come home at night and complain about life in general, I remind myself that things could be a lot worse. So. Has it ever been tough to see that on a, on a regular basis? I, do you ever feel as though you're, uh, you know, if you're constantly dealing with struggles like that in oncology where people are really dealing with literal life and death uh, diagnoses, is it tough to maintain that sense of balance? Do you ever... Do you have any like kind of approaches as to how you make sure that you keep your mental health and um, or, or does that not really uh, come into play at all? No, I it does. Um, and, you know, and I actually asked my physician, uh, Dr. Mokadam, I asked him this because I just became a nurse practitioner in February. And and I asked him, I said, has it ever hard because, you know, as a nurse, we're there, we're holding the hands it's hard. You have a heart. You, you want to see everything happen and everything good to happen. I mean, um, but you know, and the other side of things is you, you're there when people are the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So when I brought this up with Dr. Mokanum, cause as a provider, I'm struggling between, you know, the nurse aspect and the provider aspect. And he, he said, it's no different. He said, you know, when you walk in the room and you give them that diagnosis, it's, it's not easy. It's not fun, but they're putting their trust in you and, uh, you have a new relationship with them, whether it's, you know, it's going to be hard at times and it's not always going to be easy, but when you get those rewards, they're so sweet. They're bittersweet whenever you save somebody's life. So. Mm. What is, um, I'm sure most people will know this already, but what's the difference between an RN and a nurse practitioner? Oh, um, so uh, an RN, uh, we go to school for four years, and uh, we have the nursing. We have the nursing background. Well, then to become a nurse practitioner, it's about two to three years, depending on how you how you play it. It's a master's uh, with a clinical aspect, so you're right below a doctor. Mm. So, physician assistants and nurse practitioners play similar roles. Um, you know, we have a little bit more leeway because we have the clinical aspect. Um, background, but we all play the same role for the same team. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, it's just, it's two and a half to three more years. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, you, you assume that position in February, right? Yes. So that's basically as, uh, the, the COVID pandemic was picking up steam. <laughs> I think it was January 30th that the world health organization declared a public health crisis, uh, yes. globally. Yeah. And so, you know, you're taking on a new position during an unprecedented time for not only our country, but for the planet right now. Uh, 
what's your state of mind right our state of mind like right now do you um, is this something that you've been thinking about for the past several weeks do you remember the first time this kind of really registered on your consciousness as something that was very serious what, tell us a little bit about your uh, the way you viewed the pandemic and how it's really become part of your daily life so uh, you know when we first heard about it uh, when it first hit well not first hit China but um, when a what when there were patients in China that were being diagnosed with it, which what was that? November, December? Uh, the first case I think was late December. Late December. Yeah. You know, at that point in time, I think most of us in the medical field were hoping um, for there to be kind of a, a plan put in place. And luckily, I'm going to say this, luckily, um, Hershey Medical Center did have a plan put in place. So, um, so with that being said, I think I've been more calm because we've been prepped. Uh, we've had meetings. We, uh, we've had a COVID-19 committee that has had meetings, I think since January. And then we got brought into meetings at the end of January. Uh, and we had meetings probably three times a week talking about educating ourselves on what this disease, what this virus was. So we could kind of try to calm society down because we knew what was going to come and we knew what, I mean, you didn't know what was going to come, but you knew the panic was going mm. to come. I think I should say. So, you know, so with that said, um, I think people think I've been too calm uh, with all of this, uh, but if I was rattled or panicked, I don't think that would help the situation. I don't think that would help anybody, um, which is, I wouldn't, I'd be lying if I said I don't have my moments of uncertainty or I don't overthink or I don't second guess what I'm doing walking into a patient's room that, you know, has signs and symptoms of COVID-19, but um, you know, you have to trust it. You have to trust in yourself and trust in your judgment and keep calm in this, in a, in a situation that everybody else is feeling pretty rattled. That, so, that's the yeah. benefit of preparation, right? Is that you can yes. get the peace of mind from knowing that there's a plan in place. What, can you tell us a little bit about what those preparation discussions were like? Did, were there simulations? Was this, uh, you know, kind of just, um, a lecture type of format? What was the, um, what were those like? Um, so they were, it was actually pretty great. So the first one that I was at, it was a provider. So it was all of the, um, when I say APCs, I mean, nurse practitioners and PAs, uh, and then attendings, fellows, residents, you know, there were nurses, um, and it was a big lecture because at this point in time we could all be together. <laughs> so it was a big lecture. Um, and that's how it started. And it started with literally a classroom of of the epidemiology of like what this virus was and uh which was great and so then that became you know our one lecture and then the next lecture was okay actually here's here's what it is becoming and then you know here are what the signs and symptoms are yeah. so so that was those are what those meetings really really were about and then it was okay, here are the protocols. And then it was, 
now we can't all be together. So you guys have to tune in, you know, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, just so we can all go over this three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, to review the situation that's ever changing. Wow. And so it sounds like this was a pretty robust uh, preparation plan. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nothing's perfect. I mean, I'm, I like to talk sports, so nothing's ever going to be perfect. There's always going to be a plan that needs to be changed or uh, that doesn't go as planned. But, you know, we're ready. I feel as though we are ready. Do we have everything we possibly need? No, but nobody does. Right. Um, so that's, I mean, that's in a perfect world, thing. what if you, you know, if you could have everything that you need, what, what would you point to at the top of that list to say, you know, if we had this, this would go a long way? We, we need every, I mean, we need to be protected. But we all need to be protected. So and masks, gowns. Yes. Uh, gloves. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the cleaning supplies. Um, we're lucky enough right now that we have all those things, but we also don't live in the city you know, where um, you know, the, the virus can spread faster. But you know, we're just hoping that we're keeping them, we're maintaining them, and then... When the when if the mass does hit, when we have everything. What does a uh, I was reading something recently from a, a physician who was talking about how, you know, he's heard recommendations from people to just wear a bandana. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't do anything, does it? No, but <laughs> no. Okay, so no, I I have I have my issues with that, but no, it's not. But you know, if we want to look at what. People, what medical staffing has done in the war uh, and what they have implemented or what they've done just to, I don't know, prevent any type of infection, you know, they probably would have, they probably would wear a bandana. So if it has to come down to it, yes, I'll put a bandana around my mouth and do it. But no, that does not help the situation at all. So, so this is, uh, I think this week now, so we're recording this on Monday, March 23rd. Yeah. Um, Pennsylvania, at least compared to New York, obviously doesn't have the sheer number of cases that we're seeing just a few hours away. Uh, but uh, in terms of the projections, how have you looked at those? Do you see, um, like, is, is the Hershey Medical Center kind of giving a, a range for the potential number of cases that they anticipate coming in? Is there any kind of upper bound or lower bound in terms of what can be expected? Is, do you have any feel for what the figures look like going going forward these next day, few days and weeks? We don't have exact figures and we don't know what's going to come. Um, I wish we had the figures. I, I think we all wish we do, but you know, the better the we're I mean it's gonna hit us right. because we're having more tests done. Um, which is a good thing. Um, it's uh, we're gonna see more cases. Now, how we react and how we're prepared is, you know, is our plan going to work? That's what's, you know, that's what we're waiting on. And it doesn't, I, I don't question that we're not ready. So do I know what, what the number, what our projection will be by the end of, by tomorrow morning? I mean, no, I, yeah, I don't know that. No, that's fair. And so just going back to oncology, so obviously the, uh, everybody knows that people with, pre-existing conditions or, you know, who are immunodeficient have a higher risk of contracting the virus, um, oncology would seem to fall right in that bucket. Yeah. Uh, how, how have your interactions with patients changed, if at all, and 
um, what's been the impact just on your practice in terms of how you've had to change your general approach? Uh, so at the Cancer Institute, we have been rescheduling patients who are completely finished with treatment hmm. uh, and who are just coming in. So some of our patients are just uh, oral treatments where they do all their treatment at home. So those patients are not coming into our clinic. We still want them to get their labs drawn, but we're trying to organize them getting their labs either drawn at home um, or coming into our lab, but minimizing the amount that they're in our hospital. Uh, the next thing is we're trying to treat our, like our, only our patients that need to be treated and cancer doesn't, is never going to stop just because mm. there's a virus. So we are still seeing new patients. I have three tomorrow. Wow. Um, but you know, we try to minim like they can't come And here's the sad thing, you know, is as of today though, actually at five o'clock, right before you call or right before this, uh, we have decided that when we get a new patient in, we do need somebody with them. They do need a, a friend or a family member. So we will screen them as well. This morning we were not, um, letting visitors for the cancer Institute in, but you know, uh, when you're told you have cancer, you're only hearing half of half of what's being heard. So mm. we do know and are sympathetic to that. So we are letting one visitor in with that, with those patients. Um, also, we're doing some telehealth calls where patients just call in. We talk to them. We look at their labs that they've had done. Um, and we're screening patients over the phone and before they come into the hospital now. So we are screening them with, um, with questions. And if they say that they've had a fever, we will be doing their temperature as well. So Again, it sounds like this is something that I would imagine was discussed weeks, if not months ago, yes. as yeah. being part of the protocol, which is very heartening and refreshing to hear. Yeah. Uh, so I have a personal question for you. Yes. Um, you recently learned that you're going to be a mother in a few months. <laughs> Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, you said at the much. beginning that being in oncology in many ways gives you perspective about, you know, coming home and, and recognizing that life could be a lot worse, uh, that there's a lot to be grateful for. What's it like now? So you're expecting your first child. You're recently married. You're starting a new job all in the midst of an unprecedented challenge for our country. Uh, have you thought at all about how this pandemic might affect the world that your child inherits? Is there a different degree of focus that you've put on the situation now that you're expecting uh, your first child? Honestly, Tom, that is probably a very, that is like a great question because a year ago, me would not have answered this question the same, the same way. Mm. Um, to be quite honest, and I'm not one that does this, I um, have been journaling. I've never journaled a day in my life. Uh, but I really want, um, our child to know what this was, what this wow. time in history was and what happened. And I truly believe, and I know this might to some people that listen to this, uh, might think I'm very optimistic, but I truly think that we have a lot of lessons to learn that are going to come out of this very scary situation that is going to make our world better. The, the biggest lesson that I've learned is it's not all about me. And I think we're all learning that right now because if we all just stay home, if we, you know, uh, take it easy, 
don't go to work sick. We're not, we're not going to infect anybody else. Uh, so I think the biggest lesson for me is to stay healthy for this baby. Uh, because you know, me, I would be out there without the garb on <laughs> screaming every single person, not caring in the world. But now I know I have to worry about somebody else's life. And I do believe that this child will inherit a more technically advanced medical system. I was talking to Dr. Silvis last week and to hear him say that really rang true to me. Like we're, we're actually going to be advancing in the medical world right now and uh, good things are going to come from this. Uh, it's, it's teaching families the importance of staying healthy, staying active, being together, being outdoors, quality time. So I, I am optimistic about this and I think I will reiterate this when they're fifth when this child's 15 years old of what I've done for it but it's fine you know <laughs> I mean and, and journaling is really that's a gift in the future that yeah. not many people have uh, to see in real time how things are changing and to see from your hand as someone who's in the hospital uh, who's you know basically on the front lines of this I think is that's a remarkable thing. Um, I agree with you that in a crisis like this, it actually brings out the very best in our society. I think there's this real wake-up call that we have to work together. Um, and you see the, the goodness come together. Have you seen um, in the past few weeks as a result of this pandemic, have there been any heartening stories from other nurses or physicians or patients that uh, are unique to the COVID pandemic? I, uh, yes. Um, you know, I've just been talking like conversations. Uh, we, we do see what's going on outside of this world. So we do see the struggles. And of course, we're having our own because we're having to trust in each other. Uh, I think that with that being said, we are trying to work out kinks and there will be frustrations and we have to remain calm during this. So I think that conversation is a big, is a big thing right now within our hospital system is, is, uh, we're going to have these huge frustrations and they're going to come every hour of every single day, but how do we approach them is, is really what's going to matter. Um, but this is whenever working as a team comes into play and we have to really trust ourselves. We have to trust society. We have to trust everybody. We have to trust our colleagues. We are all human, and this is a pretty uncharted territory. So. Do political discussions come into those at all? I mean, it's almost impossible in this era to fully avoid politics, for better or worse. But uh, at a time like this, in those conversations, um, do they turn political? Do they take a political angle in terms of what nurses and the people you work with need and and see as the uh, challenges that we're dealing with um i have to be honest with you for the first time ever uh no mm. uh where we just want everyone does so i hate i said to my husband mike i said if i hear one more person say that they don't have pps i will jump out a window because <laughs> none of us do we don't have enough but i think that's our biggest if it, if it has to be a political issue it's a political issue but i do believe that if we're, we keep saying it, everyone's saying it, the government is listening. I, I'm not one to be political in any aspect, but 
I do believe that the government is listening. They have to listen. We're, we're begging, so they have to listen. Yeah, no, and I, and I think they are. And I think, you know, we see it, especially at the state level, Governor Wolf. Um, he's Dr. doing a great job, by the way. He's doing a great job. Dr. Levine yes. is remarkable. And, and I think that we see in real time now the value of, of real leadership. Yes. Uh, and so we're lucky in Pennsylvania. 100. Uh, Tom, I'm so glad you just said that because I continue to say how wonderful the leadership we have in Pennsylvania is. I know not every state is like that, but we are we're pretty lucky. So Absolutely. What can um what can society do to help to help you to help nurses? Obviously you mentioned staying at home. Yeah. Just recognizing that that's a massive uh role to play. But is there anything beyond that or is it is it that simple? It's just we have to stay confined and stay uh, abide by these social distancing tactics until we get through this. Yeah. Tr and also trust in us, like, you know, trust in us that we we're we are, we do seem calm. We are calm. So you guys can be calm. You know, there's, there's only a matter, little limited amount that, that the society can do. And that is the biggest thing ever is just stay home, stay healthy, stay well, eat well, get outside, exercise, but keep the social distance. You know, don't go play basketball with each other. Um, Coming but, from a basketball player too, so that's a very that's hard. <laughs> it's a tough Could thing to imagine? say. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine like 16-year-old me and you, like someone saying you cannot play basketball right well, now? I play, I was, I had, I had a routine. I was playing at the med center every Sunday morning at nine o'clock and I was in a terrible mood for like, a full week because <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't go play basketball and start my week off. On the I, foot. I know, I know, <laughs> but like it, it, it's, you know, and, and to the younger generation, they, we need you, we need them. We, uh, we need them to, to understand the importance that they have on history because not many of them have ever seen something so drastic. Uh, I don't know if any of them have actually, We've, I'm, I'm part of, what, what are we? What are we? Millennials, Millennials right? are through 1981. Yeah. yeah. And I just feel like we have such a major role, and younger than us, we have such a major role in this. And uh, if we all play our part, we're all going to make come out together. Like when in history, Tom, has have everyone have a role in what happens here? Like when in history, every single human being on the face of this planet we all can change history. We all make a difference. I just yeah, I find and that's that with action or inaction, right? right? Exactly. And uh, and it, you know, on one hand, it's a little unsettling to know that everyone has a role to play, right? Right. We can't rely on a select group of experts. We can't rely on you know a, one uh, set of Marines or an army. This is right. society as a whole. Yeah. Um, but like you said you know, what's more empowering than to know that you could save lives. Yeah. Everyone. By, exactly. Same. Um, how do you view, so, uh, just brought up like an interesting thought. So what we're dealing with now is certainly unprecedented, but we, you know, our generation has been through a lot. Yeah, you're right. We yes. were raised into war in nine 11. We made it through a great recession. Um, we've been through political turmoil. Now we're in uh, a pandemic that has been infused with a market crash. Uh, do you think that perspective on getting through struggles like this has, has helped you in, in, any, in any way? Do you think it all back to other um, kind of learning experiences that you've had, whether going through something like 9-11 or even on a more personal scale? Uh, 
have you reflected at all on, you know, your ability to navigate situations like this and what you've learned over your, over your life? Oh yeah. Nothing, nothing good comes easy. You know, you, you have to really appreciate one, like when you think about what's going on now, you have to appreciate life. You have to appreciate your family. You have to appreciate health. Um, then like in past experiences of any hard times that I've been through, which we all have our own, I think you learn a lesson. Uh, I've learned many lessons and I have to tell you, I've learned a lot of lessons in the last month. Mm. Um, I, I believe that our, our generation uh, really has seen struggle. And I think that is going to, uh, you know, help us teach others younger than us and continue to listen to the people that are older than us and wiser than us who have been through harder struggles. You know, um, I really, uh, yeah, no, that's about No, I, and I think that's true. Um, so to end on a little bit of a lighter note, <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the things I find really interesting about the social distancing is that it does kind of force you to be creative with your time. Yes. And so um, to anybody listening, do you have any favorite, whether it's like a show, hobby, book, exercise routine, something that you do at home that you would encourage someone else to do if they have the time? Yes. So I, I do an early morning workout. It's my therapy. Also, as everybody who's ever listening now knows, I'm pregnant. So, you know, I can't really <laughs> have that beer or whiskey that I would like to sometimes at the end of the day. So, but uh, I, I just recently downloaded, um, and I have to ask Mike, what did I download? Thank you. Peloton. So I just oh. recently dealt, and I don't have a Peloton bike. I don't, so they had a 90 day free trial. So I downloaded it and I've been getting some great workouts with that. Um, when, cause I'm not home, uh, I'm not home too, too late or too, or I mean, yeah, I guess I got home at six today, but I do like to just uh, relax on, on the couch or in bed. And I am an Outlander uh, TV person. Really? I just love Outlander. So if anybody wants to enjoy that. I haven't dived into it yet, but you'd recommend it? Uh, I recommend it. You have to get through the first two like episodes or the first two, yeah, episodes of the first season. And then you're like, oh, wow, this is like Braveheart. <laughs> oh, man. That sounds right up my alley, honestly. <laughs> So yeah, so Outlander and Peloton. Oh yeah, that's oh, the duo. Free. So Peloton, think of Peloton's free ninety days. If you don't like it, just cancel it in June, and hopefully this whole thing's over with. Wow, so. oh my, that's perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, hey, and you know what I wanted to say? Did you see the Nike statement? And then I'll and then I'll let you. I go. did not. Uh, Nike released a statement that I loved. And it was, if you ever dreamed of playing for millions around the world, now is your chance. How cool is that? That's perfect. Yeah. So that's what I want to end on. Well, that's a perfect way to Unless end Unless you it. want to keep talking to me. No, that's, uh, I mean, I couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> so Katrina, um, thanks for joining us. We're lucky to have you. We'll yeah, be thinking of you. you. And we'll be doing our best to stay at home. <laughs> Wash your hands. <laughs> listen everybody listen to Katrina she's the expert <laughs> yeah <laughs> Katrina thank you thank you